Welcome back to Hindsight is 2019, the podcast where we look at 250 years of Dartmouth's history through 25 objects from the library's archival collections, one object per decade. I'm Morgan Swan, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today's object is a sepia-tinted photographic print of Dartmouth College's 1901 varsity football team. In what is clearly a photographer's studio, 16 Dartmouth students stand or sit in three rows and face the camera. Their expressions are reserved and inscrutable, although a calm sense of confidence pervades the image. One of the players holds a football that bears the inscription, 1901, Dartmouth 22, Brown 0. There's nothing overly remarkable about the fact that Dartmouth had trounced Brown at football. The college then had a reputation for being a football powerhouse in the early 20th century, and some have speculated that its athletic prowess was why the college received an invitation to join the Ivy League in the 1950s, as a way to legitimize the newly formed group's sports prowess. So the football team at Dartmouth at this time was known for its dominance. What is extraordinary about the photograph, however, is the presence of a particular member of the team. In the back row, two from the right, stands a single African-American student. He stares directly at the camera from amid a crowd of white faces. His name is Matthew Bullock. He is a member of the class of 1904, and he's the first black student to play football at Dartmouth. This is an interesting factoid, to be sure, but there are lots of important and inspiring individuals in Dartmouth's history. Why then is Bullock important enough to be the focus of a Hindsight is 2019 podcast? For answers to this question and others, I sat down and had a conversation with Professor Derek White. White is a visiting associate professor of history at Dartmouth College and a scholar of modern black history with an emphasis on intellectual, political, and sports history. And he's currently working on a book about Matthew Bullock. Thank you for being here today, Derek. I'm really excited to talk about Matthew Bullock with you. Thank you for having me. So just if you would, uh, start by telling us a bit about Matthew Bullock. Who is he? Why is he such an influential figure? So Matt Bullock uh, is a member of the class of 1904. Uh, he is the child of slaves. Both his parents were enslaved in North Carolina. Uh, they migrated in the 1890s to Boston initially. From there, they moved to Everett, which is a small suburb just outside of Boston. Uh, and in Everett, Bullock went to both uh, finished elementary school and high school at Everett High School, where he was a multi-sport star. And so from there, you know, one of the questions I had in my research on this book about Bullock is like, well, how does someone get to Dartmouth? Like, what is the the academic trajectory? What, how does one get admitted? By migrating to Boston and going to Everett, Everett was one of a handful of schools in New England that one could be automatically admitted by certification. Uh, And so he did not have to take one of the exams that many of the students, especially out-of-state students, had to take. And so Everett had a high-quality academic curriculum. Uh, He did fairly well at Everett, well enough to be admitted. Uh, And so he arrives in 1900. And I thought, you know, he's the first African-American football player here at uh, Dartmouth College. And he was a fantastic player. And that wasn't the only reason I was interested, right, because of his, his, his legacy as a racial pioneer. I'm interested in also because he goes on to really symbolize many of the hopes and dreams of African-Americans. In many ways, he's probably one of the most important black graduates here at Dartmouth. Matt, as I said, was uh, one of two students who arrived when he arrived in fall of 1900. 
his roommate only lasted one year, and then he was joined as his junior year by another student. His senior year included E.E. E. Just, was a freshman that year, or a sophomore, I think he came in his sophomore year. And so Matt Bullock was, at the time, there were no more than five or six black people ever on campus. Um, but he also was a microcosm of early 20th century uh, college athletics in which in New England and in the Midwest, there are about three dozen African-Americans who play on college teams before World War One. And they all have very similar kinds of stories of being these kind of racial pioneers, facing kind of tremendous violence on the field. Football was a violent game in the early 20th century. Um, it's a violent game now, but it was even more violent then. Perhaps the most well-known incidents of violence on the field during Matthew Bullock's time at Dartmouth occurred during a Princeton game in the fall of 1903. The Dartmouth team were refused lodging at the Princeton Inn because Bullock was with them. Then the very next day, Bullock was seriously injured on the third play of the football game. Derek, can you tell us a bit about the circumstances surrounding that game and why it became a national news story? Princeton at the time, uh, and, and well into the mid-20th century, was known as the southernmost ivy, right? It was a school that had recruited primarily a lot of southern elites, and so as such, the school did not have any attempts. So one of the things that I talk about in my book is that by early 1900, 40 African Americans had um, attended Dartmouth. Harvard had about 30. Yale uh, had 10. Columbia and Penn had a couple. Oberlin had 120. And Princeton had zero, right? And so there's this sense that the Princeton players were accused of intentionally hurting him uh, because he was black. And they, you know, yelled all kinds of uh, racial epithets at him after they had injured him. Now, in their defense, the team said that they were supposed to take out the best player. So this is points out that Bullock was the best player. But a faculty member here at Dartmouth decided that this was racially motivated and wrote a big article. And so this was in the paper that the Princeton Inn, which wasn't affiliated with the school, had the same name, but had refused to give them to let them stay in the hotel. And then he was injured the next day on the field. And so this has becomes part of the story. And this is a common story. And I think this is the reason I like Matt Bullock is that this is a common story that we see for a number of student athletes uh, across the country, especially as, as these racial pioneers in college football. By the time Matt Bullock shows up at Dartmouth, college football is the most important sport uh, on college campuses, especially in, the, in New England. There's a couple of reasons for this. It, it begins to displace baseball in part because baseball has professional baseball, begins to grow at this time as well. And so the very best baseball players could turn professional. So college athletics is organized around this idea of amateurism. And so it is this you know, dreadfully fearful of professionalism. So baseball, because of the professional nature of uh, then the early major leagues, there was always a lot of fear around baseball. But college football had no pro game, and so it was the quintessential kind of uh, amateur game. And it also fit into this generation after the Civil War of young men, predominantly white, who were not old enough to participate in the Civil War. And so the Civil War is so defining in terms of American manhood, both North and South, that for the following generation, they had to prove themselves. And so in proving themselves, football provided a kind of controlled warlike uh, environment. So these young men could produce kind of 
late 19th, early 20th century versions of white manhood and white masculinity in these very elite spaces. And so for elite men who are not working class and not working on the docks and really fearing death in real kinds of ways, had to prove themselves in their toughness. And so you see that there's a whole host of uh, civic leaders, most notably Teddy Roosevelt is probably the biggest supporter of college football, believing that it was a taste of what he called the strenuous life. And so for this moment, that college football, especially in these New England colleges, was quintessentially exemplified American manhood for white, middle-class, elite men. And I think that that's an important piece, right? And it begins to spread. And so by the time Bullock gets here in 1900, the game has spread into the South. And so we see Southern colleges reaching out to Walter Camp of Yale to ask them to help build programs. By 1890, two historically black colleges have also implemented college football as well, and also on the West Coast. So college football is spread all over the country. But the elite games and the most popular teams were still in the East. Harvard, Princeton, Yale were the leading teams in the country. And so for a guy like Bullock and a whole host of these small number of African-Americans in these elite spaces, they both represented an opportunity to step into kind of masculinity and manhood that's not offered to many African-Americans. And at the same time, they're challenging these notions of white kind of masculine identity that was also emerging in that moment. It sounds like Bullock was very fortunate then to first of all be able to come here at all and then to have the chance to excel in a sphere that had become a de facto proving ground for American masculinity. Now, I know that Matthew Bullock goes on to attend the law school at Harvard after completing his undergraduate degree, which illustrates at least one of the ways that being at Dartmouth shaped his fortunes. But I know that football also had an impact on his later life as well. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Because of the spread of football, elite programs also knew more about the game, the strategies, the techniques. There's, you know, the newspaper industry was telling a lot about the game and the crowds, but they weren't giving a lot of details. And so Walter Camp single-handedly talked a little bit about how formations and plays and all the kinds of strategies. But reading a book and doing it are two totally different things. And so there becomes a small kind of cottage industry beginning in the 1890s of former players at these elite schools in the Northeast, primarily Yale, Harvard, but Dartmouth and other schools as well, uh, where they would get hired at other schools uh, as coaches, as consultants, to, to help train and create and develop football at these colleges. And so Matt Bullock is brought in to teach while he's at law school at Harvard. He coaches at the University of Massachusetts, then Massachusetts Agricultural College. In doing so, he becomes the first black head coach in the United States, right? Um, So William Henry Lewis was an assistant coach at Harvard, but Matt Bullock gets the first title as coach. And so I've been to the UMass archives and they describe, they actually pay, he's paid uh, a small amount of money, I want to say like $270 or something for being the head coach to help pay for his tuition. And so he would go to classes during the week and he'd leave at some point and he'd go down and he'd help. And coaching was very different in those days. So coaching was not like walking up and down the sideline and calling plays. Coaching really meant you work with the team captain, you talked about strategies, you ran a lot of the practices. And then on game day, the team captain was supposed to implement these strategies because it's single platoon football. So you only got most guys played both ways unless they got hurt. 
Um, there were no substitutions. So this is what it meant to coach football, and so he's the first coach. After he graduates from uh, Harvard Law, he's hired by John Hope, who is the first African-American president of Morehouse College, and he was a graduate of Brown. And John Hope hires him at Morehouse, and he becomes the head football coach at Morehouse for two years. So even though he has a law degree from Harvard, his first real career opportunity was as a football coach at Morehouse. I remember you mentioning a letter that Bullock wrote in 1968 explaining why he had established a trust to benefit needy students. So I went back and looked at it, and in it, Bullock says, It was my four years at Morehouse that showed me what could be done with education and what was being done all around me without it. Would you talk a little bit about what Matthew Bullock did after Morehouse? So Matt Bullock, you know, by 1910, he's done coaching football. You know, he takes a job at Alabama A&M, which is just outside of Huntsville, where he's a dean of the college. And while he's in Atlanta, for those four years, from 1908 to 1912, he's in Atlanta. After 1910, he passes the bar, right? So he's actually one of, there's a, there's a number, I'm working on this, but I want to say there's less than 10, for sure, maybe like six black lawyers in the state of Georgia who have passed the bar. So he's one of them. And so he's in the South. He's working at these black colleges, and he only leaves the South and these in these black colleges because of World War One. He returns to Boston because he wants to join, and it's at that point where he goes off to Europe. He comes back to Boston, and then he resettles in Boston, and that's where he really, I think, his story kind of takes a shift, right? Where he moves away from the sporting world and really more in kind of the civic world, where he really begins to embody these ideas of racial uplift and black middle class uh, service. And so there, once he's in Boston in 1920, he's by 1920, he's the president of the Urban League, which had been founded just before World War II and really kind of takes off just before World War I and really begins to take off after World War I uh, in the 1920s. So he's the president of the Boston chapter. And so he is there now trying to assist families like his own who are making the migration out of the South and landing in Boston, making sure that they get housing, making sure that they are able to find jobs, like making sure they navigate the kind of uh, difficult terrain. Because at this point, he's a Bostonian. He's a New Englander, right? So he understands this space. Migrants are flocking into the city. He's helping them make this transition out of the South and making sure that they are able to find stable housing, whether it's in Roxbury, where primarily most African Americans live, but in other parts of Boston as well, in the suburbs, Chelsea, Everett, etc. I think that's part of it. And so he really moves into civic life after World War I. So I always like to think of his story as kind of sports really related up until World War I. And then World War I really shifts his focus and he becomes much more civic related. And he just, you know, he spends the rest of his career working as a civic leader in, in Boston. Uh, not only on the parole board and eventually as, as chair of the parole board, but he also does a lot of other things in and around the community and his church uh, initially, and then also in uh, civic organizations like his fraternity as well as the Urban League. I said earlier that he was fortunate enough to come here. I'm, I'm beginning to feel like we were fortunate enough to get him. <laughs> yeah. Like, given what, what an amazing, like inspiring example he is and, and hopefully will continue to be. Yeah, he's great. He, he got an honorary in 1971, he was an honorary degree from the college. And so he lived long enough. You know, at the time, he was 89 years old when he comes back. And so I think that Dartmouth, you know, fi- you know, had the opportunity to kind of honor him. And I think that it's important that we acknowledge that he was one of the really successful black students here at Dartmouth. Thank you so much, Derek, for being here, for sharing these stories about Matthew Bullock's life with me. I'm so glad we were fortunate enough to have you here and to learn from what you've been researching on your forthcoming book on Matthew Bullock. 
Thank you for having me. Hindsight is 2019 is a production of the Dartmouth College Library and is produced as part of the celebration of Dartmouth's 250th anniversary. This episode was written and directed by Morgan Swan, produced by Jay Satterfield, and our sound engineer was Julia Logan.